0: for future episodes as well will i listen to your suggestion there's only one way to find out patreon.com slash meet me pod bye i
1: remember seeing it in the dictionary i was reading something and, and, oh here it is yeah to pass out of existence
0: Welcome to Meet Meep, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influence. Let's roll. (laughs) What up, what up, Meepsters? And if you're on patreon.com slash meetmeepod, an early edition what up, what up to you, because you're hearing this a day early. That's a new perk of the Patreon. Early access. We'll see how long it lasts. But one thing is for sure, today's episode rocks. The 2001 Roadrunner debut of Ohio's finest, Chimera, and their album Pass Out of Existence. We're joined by mythical Midwest monsters Mark Hunter and Chris Bacuzza for a truly comprehensive rundown of the band in this era, so I'm going to disappear so they can tell the story. So I will start with my kind of history of Kamira because I remember I had a friend that was uh, super into the This Present Darkness EP. He was just, you know, he was like, Kamira was his favorite band and I mispronounced it for years because it was always emails that he would send me about this. So Shamira was one of my favorite bands for a long time too. And I remember mail ordering that EP and being super stoked on the title track, This Present Darkness and Sphere. And then I remember, of course, Farm Club. So I was a huge wrestling fan. I still am. It's one of the most important things in my life. And Farm Club came on after Monday Night Raw. And the chick from the Doritos commercial is on there. And Matt Pinfield is fresh off of telling me to Listen to Jimmy's Chicken Shack to tell me about these new bands that are coming that uploaded their songs. So Dead Inside plays and then Pass Out of Existence comes out. So is Farm Club how you got signed to Roadrunner? Or is that just kind of how you were just put on a larger platform that labels became interested.
1: Interestingly enough, we were already in discussion with discussions with them. The brief answer of that is it was basically, you know, having Farm Club under our belt was this, the, the icing on the cake that, that sealed the deal and actually um, put us into a better position when it came time to actually sign with Roadrunner because so much positivity had come from it but the story leading to like how it got into farm club's hands is is actually you know chris is better suited to tell that
2: it all kind of stems back to uh when i was in high school um with just like most metal guys or metalheads or whatever you know you're just obsessed with music and want to be involved in any way as possible because it's so exciting it's hard to discover bands you know and uh you know i discovered that labels were doing this thing called street teams which is now defunct where um, they would find fans in, in all major cities and offer them tickets, uh, rare items, merch, this and that. And, and in trade, you go to the record stores and you would, you would put up displays. Uh, you would see what the stock is of the CD and you actually felt involved, like you're helping your favorite bands. And so I did that just because I, I just wanted to be involved. You know, Through that, I made a bunch of connections. And so uh, when I finally got with Camara, and we started getting some traction. Um, I believe that this present darkness EP was already out. So, you know, I had, some th- I had some leverage to go with that. So when I reached out to some old contacts, I sent them their, their CMJ reports and all that and mp 3com stats and, uh, and things just started picking up. And one other major piece was a couple of the webzines and, you know, started covering us as well. One was uh, the prp.com. Uh, I don't remember if it was the Pentrock Rock Palace back then and the owner of the site, his name's Lukabes, who I still talk to basically every day, still to this day. He just, he found out through, uh, I'm guessing, uh, just uh, underground talk about you know music and uh, picked up on us. He reviewed our album, gave it a, a great review and uh, he started spreading word about us. You know, Back then, A&R people used to go to him you know, for advice, because he was, you know, the the leader of the pact of finding uh, new bands, you know, he's a, a quintessential part of the whole modern, whatever you want to call it, new metal movement. Around 2000, we were in New York doing a showcase, yeah, at the Continental in New York City. And he tipped us off to a woman named Marcy Jacobson, who worked at Geffen at the time, which Geffen was part of Farm Club. And um, she went to the show and checked us out. She loved it. She loved our energy. And, uh, and that was it. That's how we got on Farm Club. She, she liked us so much that she pushed really hard for us to be on the show. And uh, so basically, thanks to those two, that was why we made the show. You know, obviously, like we put in some good you know, hard work and we wrote some good songs. But you know, that was a big part of that. And what's interesting, too, is like I, I, don't, I was trying to think of how I even entered Camara back in, uh, this was 99 I was just fresh out of high school and I was in like community college and I was in a a band that I played bass in and we actually practiced next door to uh, the original version of Camara and the singer of my band actually went to high school with a lot of the Camara guys and the singer of my band's brother was in a band with Mark back in when they were in high school so there's all these strange connections and we used to hang out all the time because we were literally practicing next door to each other in this warehouse.
1: They had the best room like (laughs) in there we had just you know music gear and some boxes and then we went over their room they like tvs vcr pornos, fucking (laughs) uh you know all these cool shit like man we got to step it up and make our practice space that cool
2: oh we were so horrible though like we we i don't think we even had a tuner like in the in the the practice space it was so bad we would just it was just an excuse to hang out and and we played music that sounded like uh, corn meets Mr. Bungle, but a really horrible version of that. And we would barely practice. Like he said, they, you know, they, we would, you'd hear us play like three songs and then we would just watch gummo or some movie, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for the rest of the day. And, but it was awesome. It was what I did in high school. It was, it was fun. It was my, my release from, you know, school life. And, uh, because of that, I met the Camaro guys, but it, I don't recall why they chose me to be in the band or asked. Uh, I do recall, Mark and I, I believe he asked me to be in a band at like Pizza Hut or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's probably true. My recollection of is a little hazy as well, but I just remember being a fan of, you know, my my musical tastes. Uh, besides hardcore metal, are also industrial, and um, so I. Was always hoping to have like an extra element in our sound with present darkness we were trying to make like a few sounds and i was doing them with my mouth or with guitar effects or maybe ben Schigel had a keyboard with him at the studio that we could make some sounds but we always were trying to like slowly into integrate this into the t- into the music and especially like in two what i'd say 99, 2000, I guess you're starting to see more of that too, right? Bands are getting DJs, or keyboardists are showing up, or samplers, whatever. And um, so I just recall like wanting to get Chris in the band somehow. We were like become we became friends, and I remember asking Rob like, "Hey man, you got to listen to like some Nine Inch Nails, and he can't stand stand <laughs> that kind of music." So I was like, "You know, I- I'm not doing a good job being a salesman, but for some reason, he's still." uh he still uh, thought it was a good idea as well. And, you know, I remember asking Chris, but you were there with us while we were recording present darkness, you were hanging out in the studio. And I remember that much. And um, I think it was only a matter of time before we figured out how to get you into the band.
2: And and I do remember that, you know, at that time, fear factory was huge and they had that extra element, that industrial sound. and, And that was a huge attraction. Um, to you guys, and, and me, of course, as well. Uh, and obviously Slipknot's first record came out and that exploded and that was so exciting. And I was so drawn to that because, uh, you know, the, the stuff my band was doing was was not uh, at the level of uh, intensity that I, I, I wanted out of music. And so naturally, like when they said, would you want to do this kind of you know, electronic thing? I was like, absolutely, you know, uh, I could figure it out. I'm just that guy with like born computer intuition I had no experience going into it. There was a computer program back then called Acid Pro or something like that, where you're just taking like waveforms and dropping them on a timeline. And, and I would just make songs and, you know, I was kind of toying around with that up until, you know, he actually actually asked. So when he offered, I was like, yeah, I could probably figure it out. You know, I'm making music, these goofy songs myself at home. Why not? So Mark,
0: going back to this present darkness, who is doing all those echo scratch It's just making noises with your mouth?
1: There's some with, that I did with guitar, and then there's some I did with uh, my mouth, and then there's a few things we did with some keyboards. Um, if you listen to my original band on Spotify, too, before Camero, there's a band called Skip Line, and I think it was the title track of our album. I do all this weird shit on my guitar. I just liked scratching in making pick noises and weird things like that. You put it through a bunch of effect pedals and you could kind of make samples that way. It was a very primitive way of kind of combining like influences of like, I guess, a Tom Morello, you know, with, hey, we don't have any keyboards in our band. We're Rage Against the Machine. All these sounds come from a guitar, but also liking, you know, non-conventional instruments. I love Nine Inch Nails or, you know, the guys making sounds with a straw in downward spiral. So
0: not long after pass out of existence comes out. I was working at a studio in Boca Raton, Florida, and one Bradley Kochmit gave me a skip line CD of a song just called down It's one song. And uh, I don't know if he was in skip line or just around it, but I still have that CD somewhere.
1: Holy shit. So um, Brad, Brad joined the band at the tail end of our tenure, if you will. And the band broke up because our first out of town show, we got all of our equipment stolen and uh, we had to hitchhike back home from Rhode Island. But um, Brad was in the band towards the later end. And I was actually the guitarist of Skipline. And then I moved over to vocals because we started writing heavier tunes and our vocalist we started writing more like, I guess you could call it metal core or what we, you know, Kamir would eventually become. Whereas our vocalist was very tailored for hardcore. And we kind of started out with hardcore and like throwing like a couple breakdowns. So he worked out perfect for that. But once we started incorporating more metal, the riffs had to get more complex. And then I became the vocalist. And that's when Brad jumped in. And um, he's probably in the band for maybe like six months. You know, the band didn't even last that long. To begin with. So, but I remember meeting Brad and we were introduced. You know, I was a drummer, young drummer, and I know I just said I was a guitarist, but hey, before that, I was a drummer. I was a young drummer and he was a guitarist. And I was excited to meet him and like maybe start a band with him. So, you know, mutual friend hooked us up and we went over to Ben's place because Ben had a studio and we're like, all right, I can play. And then my on the Ben's drums and meet this Brad guy and see if we have a connection musically, dude. Brad was so much more advanced than me as a <clears> musician <throat> that I, I just basically looked at Ben and like handed him the sticks and like, hey man, this this dude's yours. Like that, like, like Brad's like fucking you know Ingve Malmsteen at age <laughs> sixteen.
2: For the people that might not know who we're talking about, uh, you know, in Skipline the lineup was. Mark, Jim LaMarca, he's bass. Uh, ben Shigel did what? Drums? Yeah, Ben Shigel and drums. And uh, if you recall, Ben Shigel produced many of our records. And uh, he was in the band Switched as w- uh, Switched, and I think a few others. But uh, And then Brad Coachman, I didn't even know he was in the band. He was in uh, Switched as well. And then he was in Nonpoint for the longest time. So yeah. it's, there's I mean, like, there's and so and many there's so like, many ties.
1: There was like, he played a show with us too. It was him and Ed became, our, Ed Gandalf became skipped on guitarists and I became the vocalist and we played a couple of shows and fizzled out really it's kind of wild fun. how
2: how Strongsville Ohio had this little network of people that were in the creative sphere that just did so well and then Todd Bell was so Todd Bell he directed all of our DVDs and films and music videos He ended up moving out to California. You know, he went to high school with all those guys as well. He went out to California, went to film school. I think that's where he went. And he always was an integral part of Chimera and our vision. Another guy, Garrett Zunt, who helped with a lot of our artwork as well. We had this network of friends that we trusted and everyone understood each other. We're all cut from the same cloth and it was just really cool.
1: Another cool connection from Strongsville is uh, Matt Warburton. He wrote for The Simpsons and also for Community. He was like one year below me. And weirdly enough, I just met some client. She's like, oh, my daughter works at Geffen Records for 20 years. What? (laughs) Why does everyone in Strongsville have like a music industry connection?
2: When I first was asked to be in the band and, and they were recording This Present Darkness, I believe that's when we started transitioning, to, transitioning me into practicing with the band. And I had no idea how to perform this stuff live. I had no equipment to do so. I wasn't about to bring my giant PC down to the practice space. Mark knew um, the singer of Integrity, Dwid. And uh, Dwid was very much into electronic music as well as kind of one of those side things. And so he talked to him about, you know, showing me what he has and uh, his, his gear wise and, and kind of showing me the ropes. And, uh, I remember, yeah, the, the, my first piece of gear I bought was a Roland 808 SP, I think it was called. And, uh, yeah, because it showed it to me. I was like, Oh, this is perfect. You know, you, you load a bunch of waveforms onto a zip disc, you put it in this uh, drive and you have buttons glowing and tells you what to hit and you could add effects. And, uh, it was really cool. And I think it had like a theremin thing going too, maybe.
1: Yeah, you would put your hand over the.
2: Yeah. So on the top, there was like this motion sensor theremin type sound, and, and, and you know, which made it, you know, it was another cool perk to having it. And I remember, you know, going to Guitar Center, buying a bunch of sample CDs because, you know, I, I had no gear to even make samples. I would go home and just load them into the programs I have, and I would just mess with effects and pitch shift them and, and, and make them unique. And, uh, and that's how I came across the Dead Inside sample. And I can't remember what the original source was, but it, you know, it was distorted and pitched and I just dumped it onto the zip drive to practice. And uh, I just started playing it one day. And uh, this was one of my first practices too, I believe. And I, and I had my samples running through my bass grid and it just didn't sound good, but it worked. And uh, I think it was Jason Hager uh, started just ripping the opening riff of dead inside over it and the song was basically written in that first practice or first or second practice i was in it was kind of wild how just bringing in one element spawned you know a new level of creativity
0: and a huge song for the band i mean i know that one you guys shied
1: away from after the second album comes out but that's the song we play on farm club that seals the deal it becomes you know a fan favorite and uh, t-shirt. We never did, yeah. T-shirt. I can't believe we never did a video for that one. It's kind of mind blowing.
2: Yeah, I, I think in regards to shying away from it, you know, I'm sure I have to have a lot to do with it. And and my issues with the song are mostly that it just shows the immaturity of like my sound in that time, or you know, because I evolved over time, and and you know, I was still trying to figure out how was even going to fit what I was doing into Chimera, without taking away from what they already had going on, but also not straight up ripping off Slipknot or Factory. You know, I I would have loved to do more industrial stuff, but I knew that I couldn't do it. At least at the time I didn't, I didn't know how to do it without sounding like straight up ripping off Factory because we already had similar riffages Factory.
0: How does Mudrock get involved
2: in being the producer?
1: Through our A&R, Kevin Estrada. Kevin had a band called Anyone. Um, Since you're a roadrunner connoisseur, you might even be familiar with that album. Intimately. And he, um, Mudrock produced that album. And while Kevin was in the studio with Mudrock, he played our demos, uh, presumably Dead Inside and things of that nature. I think it was Dead Inside. And Mudrock just fell in love with it. He was like, man, this is really cool. I really like it. I really want to produce this band. And we had always envisioned Dino from Fear Factory producing our record. And that was kind of a weird... I guess piece of commura trivia, not too many people know about, but, you know, he was our first thought, of course, he got busy with what would have been Dig Immortal, and it it took us a long time to get signed anyway. So when we had heard that Mudrock was so enthusiastic about producing us, you know, we had never thought of Mudrock because, you know. Like I you weren't, said, we were you weren't
0: really... a big Power Man 5000 fan at the time? <laughs> Even yeah. that, but
1: it was, you know, we're thinking this guy just does Godsmack. So it was kind of almost like, whoa, you know, I remember feeling like it was a big deal that he wanted to work with us just because he had, you know, done such a, a massive album under his belt and didn't really need to work with a band of our caliber, if you will. And I remember really enjoying the Godsmack guitar tones and thinking their albums just sound really big.
2: I believe there was like an influence at the time too, where Roadrunner was trying to welcome in more radio friendly metal albums, like not so much making you sell out, but making something accessible so they could, you know, move more records because it was, you know, worked well for Factory. They made it known that we'd have a better push if we offered some stuff up. I think we were just excited because it was, you know, we were being pushed into the big leagues and this is an era where it was big money labels and they are just throwing it around and, and uh, we got caught up in the moment and it was exciting, you know, like to feel like we're part of the roadrunner roster, you know, the, the bands that we all looked up to, you know, we had like a small bunch of songs, but I don't feel like they were like fully developed because, you know, a lot of times like most bands, their first record, they have so much time to work on those songs. I feel like half our songs on that record were done like just months before we went to record, you know, or somewhat done.
1: That's, yeah, that's not, uh, uh, there, uh, we had a weird issue with us as well that the stipulation on our contract requires for a, a specific amount of songs, and that's, you know, not to get too boring, but it's under the mechanical royalty, and we wound up, you know, having to repurpose a couple EP songs because of that, yeah, pretty, pretty underprepared and having to flesh out ideas. And we spent about a week in pre-production fleshing those ideas out. They, we were like in Mate's studio and that's where we were preparing click tracks for the album and then um, kind of repurposing. Like that's how we discovered Sphere You know, and the whole like slowing it down at the ending. That's a big change from the EP version. And I think Abeo, I was making that joke when I... Uh, and I was like, yeah, this is before I did drugs. But the, the song was there because we needed an extra song. Yeah. Like, that's how underprepared we were. And we had to fill this quota of 14 songs. It's like, we don't have another song. So here's this
2: thing. So Mates, for who like people that don't know, it's a rehearsal studio, I think, in Burbank, somewhere in, the, in Southern California, Los Angeles area. And it's used for pre-production on albums. It's used for live pre-production. And it's just a series of studios and like this warehouse complex. And we rented out one for two weeks and worked with Mudrock, you know, just going over every song because you obviously don't want to be making these changes in the studio, especially as a new band. You know, the cost of Mates is probably half of the cost of, you know, being in the studio every day working on stuff. And uh, it was also a good time to just get familiar and comfortable with Mudrock. And I don't remember if you had an engineer in there or not. Some cool things that happened at Mates. Motorhead was renting out, the studio next door and um a couple of the guys would uh, would always hang out with us uh, mickey d the drummer because there's like a you know like a lounge area with a pinball machine and you know when you want to take a break and do whatever your options were either walk around the parking lot or go to this lounge area and um so we would hang out with mickey d i believe todd youth play guitar for danzig mm-hmm. and you know he was always hanging out with us as well and uh you know, and then one day they're like, hey, you guys want to watch Motorhead practice? And, and and half of us were like, fuck yeah, you know, like, so one of my memories is just mean. I think it was Mark and Jim hanging out with Motorhead while they make us go deaf. It was the loudest thing ever. It was just every amp cranked the loudest volume and, you know, got to hear about six songs. It was sick. It was such a wild time for us, just dudes okay. from Cleveland to just be dropped into this artificial Hollywood worlds and, and trying to mingle with these people when you, you just, you're cut from a different cloth and you, you know, you just don't act and think the same way as everyone else. And just trying to fit in, it was such a strange time. And we we're hanging out at the rainbow bar and grill overnight going broke, spending our money on, you know, $12 Red Bull and vodkas You know, I was 19 and they were serving me. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was a wild time. You know, our manager, um, actually, who was our manager at the time? Was Scott our um, manager?
1: The uh, we had a mix. Uh, we started off uh, managed by Tom Hazart, and then we eventually moved over with Scott Koenig and King Artist Management. And I want to say during the Roadrunner era, right in that beginning time, they were still kind. They were kind of working together, but Scott was uh, kind of, if I remember correctly, anyway. He was, you know, gearing to be more and more towards our main guy by that point.
2: Yeah, Scott also managed Fair Factory, Spine Shank, just to give you some background on
1: Biohazard, him. Downside, yeah. yeah.
2: And he was, he was kind of known as the mayor of the Rainbow, um, and so you'd, you'd go hang out with them, and because you're sitting with them, you'd get to meet everyone else because they'd all come up to talk to with them. You know, the Rainbow every night, you'd see Be real and his crew all smoking right on the front patio. Uh, Stefan from Deftones was all often hanging out with them. And, you know, through going to the Rainbow, you know, we got – to be more friendly with Stefan. He somehow discovered our EP and uh, we sent him a shirt. We found out he loved the band and he wore it during a rock and reel performance, which is really cool, which is one of those multicast performances. So you got to see us you know, on TV with the, or him on TV wearing our shirt, which is, I mean, as a massive Deftones fan, that was just like, oh my. Tom Hazard, he was one of the main people I gave my stuff to. And I met him because he was living in, in Sandusky, Ohio. It was really strange. I met him at a Peabody show. Cold and Chamber. it was, it was a Cold Chamber opened. And that's why I went. It was off, just the first record just came out. Cold Chamber opened for like Rip Incorporated and Bloodlet. It was such a weird show. Bloodlet. Yeah, it was a cool show. It was weird. And, and since I was like, not exposed to a lot of those bands, you know, I had no idea what was going on. You know, I was, I was so caught up in the Roadrunner, new metal thing as well. You know, like I was a big Corn fan, you know, throughout high school. That was like my band, you know, Deftones. But yeah, that's how I met Tom. And then Tom was a, uh, he, he was a, a big advocate for us in uh, in LA, so he was uh, integral to to getting us to the, to basically put us in the right hands. You know,
0: I didn't know that Kevin Estrada was your ANR. I think I always thought Monty Connor was. So that's interesting that Kevin Estrada was like, "I gotta get out, pass out of existence, and I gotta get out, pin the tail on the honky."
1: In the same year, right. So what's funny is Monty thought we were basically great value corn. <laughs> we were worthy to be signed. But Kevin really believed in us and pushed for us. Then all of a sudden, you know, more and more things started happening positively for the band. Finally, you know, Monty came in to our showcase in New York City, the same one that Chris was mentioning earlier that Marcy from Farm Club went to. Monty was there as well. So was Jose from uh, Sirius. He was uh, a young... Mengen? Yes, uh, Jose Mangan. He was a young um, television personality for... Was it TVT Records? They were doing some sort of uh, promo thing and he was outside of the Continental. And that was the first time we met him. So that was a very you know important night. But no, yeah, Monty was basically like, you guys are fucking great value corn pass.
0: The other thing that's very interesting to me is you mentioned wanting Dino to produce the album because especially re-listening to it recently, but even then, you know, it seems like very much like level two of Demanufacture. not only because of the sound, but you know, the album cover, the colors that are used, the way it has that mechanical looking bug, which I, maybe Chris, you can talk to me more about uh, the artwork for it. But mm-hmm. I always thought that it, it seems like, you know, not an imitation or a, a knockoff of Fear Factory, but certainly heavily influenced. And I'm sure having, an electronics member didn't hurt that influence in my mind for sure.
2: When it came to the creative stuff with the band, for whatever reason, Mark and I always uh, took the lead on that. We were the ones that always had the ideas. Uh, the other guys just wanted to focus on focus on music. That was where they were most comfortable. And uh, I loved, you know, all things art and anything to do with working on a computer. You know, was my thing. And uh, I don't remember who exactly did the artwork.
1: Neil. LRD, oh
2: yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's this guy from Scotland who I think we got hooked up through Roadrunner. They just suggested someone maybe, you know, his name is Neil Allardyce and he ended up doing our websites for a while. And, uh, he was just, he became a buddy of mine and we, he, he did like two or three of our websites and, but he only helped with the first record artwork. And, uh, I believe we just wanted something very techy because we knew the sound of the record had a very, I guess, sci-fi sound in regards to the sampling, you know, um, and and I don't know how that even happened, but it had a very futuristic sound. And uh, we wanted to reflect that. I don't know if that artwork really gives the right vibe to the record or the band. It just it kind of just happened, you know, and we just like, OK, this is cool. We'll take it. You know, um, I don't I don't recall us getting super involved like we did later on, you know, in Guards to Artwork. Like the first record was definitely one where Owner had more hands in it.
1: I remember my only recollection of it was really not having much input, like you said, but getting the material back and being like, whoa, we've never really seen much like that before. Because, man, you got to go back again 20 years and, you know, almost seeing like a 3D rendering on a Photoshop is almost, you know, new to to dudes like us. And like, I've never seen anything like
2: that, man. I remember it being kind of similar to Chaos Fear by Meshuga, their record cover. And I was like, that's really cool. And uh you know, uh, not as evil as theirs, but uh, you know, is that same kind of like futuristic, violent vibe, you know, to it. Um and uh yeah, that was mostly it. We I don't recall the direction or giving them direction or anything like that. I think it just happened, you know. Um
1: it reminds me of Phantasm, the horror movie that's always been my
2: well, I know that uh,
0: This Present Darkness has a little bit of singing on a, a few songs that Lend a Hand has singing on it. Is that you singing on Lend a Hand? Actually, Ben Shiggle. Interesting. That's what I thought. Yeah. But what was, uh, you kind of referenced earlier that, you know, Roadrunner was kind of looking for a more commercial sound, certainly not just a full-blown pop band or anything like that. But what was one of the first songs for Pass Out of Existence that you remembered writing like a full-on like
1: sung chorus for? Taste mine. that's kind of where we actually met Mushroom Pet. So, so yeah, Taste My would have been, been, at least the first one I remember, like really trying to record and demo. And that also is the introduction of Jim LaMarca to the band. And the, one of the most, or excuse me, one of the first songs we wrote with him. And he, we went to record those demos at a location, a studio named uh, Mars. And that's an infamous recording studio. They did Integrity. They did the Earth Crisis Firestorm. Um, they did all the Mushroomhead records. And they recorded their... The big attraction besides being a legendary studio in Cleveland was they recorded with Analog. And uh, we wanted to try that. I know for certain that we did Taste Mine. But it was funny because Jim was hanging out in the studio and he had a Slipknot sticker on his bass and the mushroom head drummer came in and there was just like that really weird, awkward moment because that was pretty much the height of their beef.
2: You know what? That's probably what led to some of the the negativity between the two bands, because obviously we're going to side with Slipknot because we were friends with the guys and wrote on affiliation. So I think that's where that came from, too. So. Yeah. But yeah, I remember that. I remember, rec- I actually remember tracking and because it was analog, it was so awkward. I have to just plug my sampler in and make sure it's in time with it. It was so weird. I don't even know if we pl- recorded to a click track. I remember it being very difficult to record those samples and, and it was not fun. It was not Pro Tools, that's for sure. Um, at least the tracking part.
1: We also did demos at Morris Sound during Resurrection, which is not to jump way too ahead, but... That's another legendary studio which i have no idea where those demos are either and i would love to get my hands on both
0: yeah that's roadrunner
1: as hell to do more sound that's all those like
0: obituary and deicide. and i mean you know what it is so i don't have to tell you that.
2: i remember the the moment where we got you to start doing clean vocals because we wanted to a lot of guys wanted to incorporate that but we just didn't know if you could even sing so you never sang it was always like when we would do lend a hand live or whatever you would scream or just not do the chorus or or that part from what i remember at first and then eventually you started singing it and then we started kind of like pushing you to go in that direction as well or at least to give it a shot you know um and uh, it was kind of cool to see how that came came to.
1: yeah i had no idea what i was doing but that was I mean, we it was conscious, you know, as well because we were also fans of heavy bands that utilized clean vocals. It wasn't just like, "Hey, man, we need to make some accessible shit," but like, man, Mudvayne was another influence. They had like a songs like "Death Blooms," where it's like that shit's heavy as fuck, but it's also melodic and nice, and you know, machinehead, obviously. Yeah, so I think Fear Factory, in, yep. exactly. In addition to having a bit of pressure of hey, you know, you wanna sell records, um it's also like, hey, you know, we're also a fan of this style of music as well.
0: So the album opens with a let go, which I think is a really good representation of the album. It kinda of has everything that the band does on this album in one song. Interestingly enough too, I noticed that it seems to be the only song with like a guitar solo, like a full on solo. Was so that a conscious thing to not include? It seems like somebody like Rob, who I'm pretty sure has never played a wrong note in his life, would not uh, hmm. want to keep guitar solos out of it. But was that something that was intentional?
1: It's the era. We weren't writing music with guitar solos, and it just wasn't a thing. I, I mean, again, Rob also is a metalhead at heart, but was coming from the hardcore scene. And you just don't hear guitar solos in the hardcore scene, right? You're just, it's like intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, breakdown, you know? For sure, yeah.
2: That metalcore era coming off of This Present Darkness and that whole, like, you know, obviously like bands like Hatebreed, they weren't doing solos back then either. And we were, you know, they were definitely in that vibe, you know, that This Present Darkness. And and yeah, just like you said, like it just wasn't a thing then, you know? Um, It wasn't that Rob didn't want them. It was just that we weren't what we're doing
1: they didn't they didn't call for him we didn't write music with solos in mind things of that nature but
0: it wasn't like a thing where
1: he was like hey can i put a solo on here and you guys were like no
0: (laughs) oh never no okay severed seems to be the song that stick around stuck around in the the set for the longest probably even to the
1: the end so what about this song are you guys so fond of I don't know if it's that we're fond of it. I think the fans are fond of it, right? And uh, it's a highly requested song. It's it's one that when you're a front man and you want to command the crowd, I mean, it, it's perfectly set up for me to be like, all right, here's where you're going to jump. Here's where you're going to kill each other. Here's where you're going to sing along. It's one simple fucking word. Uh, it's really tailor-made for the live experience, especially for... When we would, It's a shorter song, so when we would play and open for new acts, it, it, it was an easy song for us to win the crowd over with.
0: Chris, do you feel the same way about this song as not the front man?
2: I got worn out, of on, it, uh, worn out on it real quick, you know, as, as we progressed and things got more intricate. And, and a lot of my issues with any song is usually my input on the song, and Severed, was something where there wasn't a lot of input for me you know all all i really did was a couple little sounds on the verses and then uh, i would help on vocals live and then there was that breakdown part you know so playing it live was just kind of unchallenging and boring to me you know it's a fun mosh song obviously the crowd loves it um but yeah it's just uh, something that didn't sit well with me over time but it all reflects on just me being uh self-aware and uh or not self-deprecating and uh
0: What's funny for me about this song is that I used to really like it, but then it, I started to be spiteful towards it because when I would go see Kamira and that would be the only song off this album you guys would play, it uh, made yes. me like hate it. I'm like, oh, it's this one. They're not going to give me what I want. They're going to give me Severed instead
1: again. While we're in Pass Out era, if you look at it from a, a, a distance, uh, we were put through the ringer mentally. You know, we're jumped into, hey, go make an album. Whoa. And then you're all excited for the album to come out and you're ready and then there's this huge delay and we're then on tour for a whole bunch and we're tr- we're out promoting an album that's not even going to come out and then we're spending all of our money and it's just then the record late record comes out and it's doesn't doing well and 9-11? Like, Fuck 9-11 comes and we're like you know what it's time to fucking hit the boomer reset button turn it off and then turn it back on again brother and so yeah
2: Near, near the end of, you know, while we're on that cycle, too, was at the same time, uh, the beginning of the exile of new metal and, uh, and that whole sound of having heavy samples, sometimes DJs, that was looked down upon and, and musicianship was ushered in in solos and, and thrash riffs and Swedish riffs. And uh, that became the cool thing. And, uh, you know, those were all those bands were already influences of all my band members, well, not my band, you know, the Khmer guys. So it wasn't like, we we're like, oh, we want to sound like this. It was already in, in there, you know, like Rob's main influences are like Cannibal Corpse and Deicide, so that was already in his DNA. But, uh, you know, as we went on, you know, press was just crushing new metal bands. And and, uh, and, and obviously that, that put pressure on us because Roadrunner wanted us to, to, have, a, to have longevity. And so in order to do that, you know, they, they, they definitely influenced the record after, um, which was a mega was a pretty big blow to me. And I don't know how, how deeply you want to get into it at this point, but like, you know, my presence on that record is very little because of the pressure from Roadrunner.
1: It was difficult. You know, Chris is totally right that the new metal Exodus was happening. And we were also kind of frustrated by that while we enjoyed new metal music and that we definitely had influences of new metal, we also came from the the school of hardcore, the school of death metal, the school of industrial. Um, so it wasn't just, just being lumped into that category was annoying. And so we were like, let's do our own category. And that's where the, you know, the new wave of American heavy metal phrase comes from. And the, the cognizant decision to change um, to get more back to our roots of, you know, yeah, I like corn, but I wasn't listening to corn when I was eight. I was listening to Slayer, so let's get back to shit, you know. Yeah, yeah. the Slayer the
2: Slayer tour was definitely a a, a, big, pivot, a pivotal point for us in our and seeing you know us all being huge fans and then seeing how they do things and it just rubbed off on, rubbed off on us. And I know Rob wanted to step up into a lead guitar role and uh, he he crushed it. Then also Matt DeVries was a new element to the band. You know, Matt came in right after the record was released, you know, replaced Jason. And instantly Matt brought an entirely new influence, you know. So that's where the Kamarich found definitely shifted more towards death metal thrash riffs.
1: But yeah, there's, uh, there's you know, the single string, uh, but we still kept that around too, man. Like a song like Six, the chorus of that is that's as fucking pass out as you can get. It's just not as t- detuned, de- right? So that's the biggest change is the tuning from the low A, drop A, drop G tunings of Pass Out to the yeah. drop C, higher tuned songs. They sound more metallic. They sound more thrashy. It's They're automatically going to sound less new metalish. So I worked
2: with this guy, so to go back to Pass Out, I worked with this guy named Justin Walden. He was the uh, the engineer on a record, or he was the guy, he was brought in to... to pr- so with Pro Tools, you know, you often need someone to edit all the, the drums and stuff to just make sure they're perfectly on the grid so that you can make edits throughout the song without problems and, or with ease or whatever. And Justin, um, he was known for, um, he worked on Seven Dust Home, that record. He worked on Paul the Leader um, and a few others. He was, a, he was an interesting cat and he had tons of chops. He was just like a, a local Hollywood musician who had his own band, but then on the side, he programmed drums, you know, to make a living. And uh, he helped me a lot on Pass Out with samples, like the end of Sphere. I think there's like a keyboardish outro. He helped me with that. I didn't have that gear to do that. He brought up in all his own stuff, showed me how it worked. And, and that's how that came about.
1: Yeah, the, that's true. The, a lot of the effects came from guitar. Like we were still doing what we had brought over from Present Darkness, a little bit into the Pass Out, but by... I don't think we ever did that kind of stuff again after that. Like you you were by impossibility. You're already like all the sounds are coming from you from that point on.
2: Yeah. Impossibility moving forward from possibility was all on me. I did obviously have help. I love collaborating because that's how I learned new things. That was kind of a thing that always stuck with me. I always felt like I was uh, the guy who didn't belong on tour because I was around such talented dudes, you know, and I was just some dude figuring it out and uh, you know, where I excelled was on the creative side with Camara, you know, all things you would see um, between stage production, websites, uh, artwork, you know, the presentation of the band, you know, our branding, you know, that's where I excelled. And uh, it was cool that I was in a band where they respected me being a guy that was uh, learning on the job at all times.
0: Well, I think to be fair, from how early on Camara became a signed bands, you all are kind of learning on the job you're all developing sure, and processing sure. you're all so young i know you're the youngest but you know mark even said he's not significantly older than you that you're all developing as human beings and as a band so i wouldn't say that you should take all of that uh, that weight on yourself it seems like the band as a whole so much so that there's member changes almost
2: immediately after absolutely absolutely it's just one of those things where i was always hard on myself because i wanted to be the best at what i did and uh, that's all it was it was just pushing myself and uh, you know i was sensitive to 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 that and uh you know i would hear hear comments here and there down the road like when we're on tour like uh, because you know live you know i'm just triggering samples later on i brought in keyboards and stuff but it still wasn't i wasn't like children bodum dude ripping solos on the keyboard so you know i'd hear comments and remarks here and there and it, you know it's tough to hear that but it's just like uh you know one of those things that you deal with you know i think i brought a unique element to the band
0: yeah i think there's no question about that i think that definitely set Kamira apart especially early on, especially with this album. So I uh, am grateful for your contribution to it well, because I I'm sure I wouldn't have been as interested in even, even just uh, seeing the video for split, which we can go ahead and talk about now, split being the single, you know, the, the visual of having that, you kind of brought it up earlier, that, that sixth member, whether mm-hmm. it's a DJ, a keyboard player, a sampler that immediately, especially at that time attracted me. I was like, okay, so this band isn't just two guitars, bass, drums, and vocals. I, it has something new. Cause I've, got plenty of bands that are that, you know, I want that, that new thing to, to excite me. So I feel like your presence on it. And also this is maybe just me making stuff up, but in my mind, you were always kind of like a producer of the band as well. I know maybe Shiggle, he becomes like officially the producer on the next record, but I always kind of saw you as that role. And maybe that's just me projecting because you're, (laughs) you're doing the electronics. So I'm like, Oh, he must also be producing, you know, like, but
2: I, I could see where that could be, your thought because samples were and the electronic sound was so heavy on pass out um, i definitely was never a producer but I, I was lucky to work with people so welcoming and and so willing to collaborate you know mark mark and rob always were the guys leading the charge on our records and our sounds um, and obviously whoever was actually producing it you know we always made sure to choose someone that would work well with us and we wanted someone that could contribute i, I always felt comfortable with getting their ideas and trying to take it to some another place instead of like hey guys here's this thing I did let's write a song around it which I know they would have done or tried but you know it only worked out with I think Dead Inside and maybe one or two other songs where I came up with something and a song was born um, but I, I liked having the canvas to paint on um, it was fun.
0: Pass out of existence is the name of the record and the name of the song. So Mm -hmm. where does that title come from and why was
1: that the song that you chose to name the record after, or
0: is it the other way around?
1: I remember seeing it in the dictionary. I was reading something. Oh, here it is. Yeah. To pass out of existence. Oh, that sounds cool. I don't remember why, uh, but I just saw that phrase and I thought it was cool, but it's, uh, it's the definition of the word disappear. The, uh, title, it just fit, right? So the syllables fit. I don't remember which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, but um, the it just fit in that song. I felt that phrase, it worked. I probably had the phrase first, and then I dropped it in. Like it just, you know, fit like a glove, if you will. It's kind of like sometimes a lot of uh, phrases just if you're scatting over the song or whatever and like oh the- I hate everyone was the same thing it just you know, it just came out and it, it was almost by accident. So it's possible it happened that way. I don't really, really recall other than where the where it came from.
2: I was actually I was a huge I was super proud of that of that track because it was the first time I got to really do some industrial stuff with ministry type sampling on it. And of course, Andels ruined the main sample for me. That's throughout the verse. He would make, he would mimic it with his mouth and practice and make fun of it. He made it sound like Pac-Man or something, and just destroyed it for me. And uh, um, but yeah, that was a cool track, and uh, that was a way. That was one of the first times I was able to showcase, like, yeah, my ministry, nice nails, type influence. Um, you know, and uh, I believe that track was all me. I don't remember getting much help on that.
0: My favorite thing about that song was it starts off with that main riff, but the the um tempo of it is almost like an 80s song you know the the drums like are like a little bit more upbeat and it never comes back to that beat but it it deceives you like it's about to be a happy song but in fact (laughs) (laughs) that would be the next song right bayo which is latin for to bring joy yeah and what a joyous track it is
1: latin to depart to go away to transform to metamorphosize to pass
2: look Over- at ryan trying to be all positive and then the yeah i was trying to <laughs> try to bring some light to this
1: dreary oh man it's to fucking no can you swear on this channel the uh the the, the disappearing you know whole
0: you can swear vibe. but you can't say the c word so we'll get to that in a second chimera yeah i
2: mean if you, if you, look, at the, <laughs> if you look at the if you look at the lyrical content there's always uh, you could tell mark's releasing demons and it's never uh joyous vibes so yeah, split
0: is the single and an interesting thing about the lyrics for that is because the album in general doesn't really have a whole lot of profanity mm-hmm. but you've got the c word on here which is at the time i remember maybe things have changed because of bbc
1: but you couldn't that was like the worst word you could say i remember and you said it you son of a bitch i don't like saying it So now that song interestingly came about from by that point. So Split was a newer song of ours. And like Chris mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, we were unprepared and I didn't have vocals for that song. So that was one of the ones that I was unprepared with. And by this point, I'm out of ideas. I'm out of gas. I'm out of everything. And I believe Mudrock was telling me a story of some um, situation he was in with uh, a relationship. And that's where I drew the influence from. I was like, yeah, and then like it just worked, you know, again, one of those that word just came out, it landed in phonetically and in the pocket and in the in the in the song. And uh, but yeah not a personal song for me. And um, people wonder about that. Like, man, who's the bitch that got that, that ass Mudrock. That that, song. <laughs> that's his, uh, from what I remember anyway.
2: I kind of remember the birth of that song too. We, I think we wrote the main riff right before leaving to do that small. So we did it in, in January of 2000, or was it 2001? We did a small Roman spine shank and uh, they happened to come through town and at the time we were already working with scott or in talks with him and so he you know told told his band because he was managing him as well to check us out and uh, or have us open up the show and we got along so well with those guys they were just having local openers open up their tours just finding a point. and we're like can we come you know we've never done a tour and they're like sure why not you know they liked us and they literally just like that we're meeting up with them a couple of days later and uh It was uh, we toured in Matt DeVries is he was he wasn't even in the band at the time, but he he drove with us his Chevy Blazer with the U-Haul attached to it. And then um, our drum tech at the time, or if you want to call him that, his name is Jay. We drove in his car. It was like uh, an old Impala or something like that. And that's how we got to all the shows. And we stayed we shared one or two hotel rooms. We had absolutely no money. I don't think we made more than $100 per show, but we didn't care. It's just like, holy oh shit, we're on tour with a major label band and they were such cool guys and they they kind of just took us under their wing for for a good year or two. And um, But I remember jamming Split during Soundcheck at, it was like, I think it was Chattanooga, Tennessee. I don't know why I remember this, but I, I can picture the, the stage and everything. And uh, Jay, our drum tech was, Rob, Rob busted out the riff and Jay just started playing the song. And I think we, we wrote the chorus and verse during just rehearsal, you know, like a soundcheck or whatever. And uh, we just kept jamming because such a fun, bouncy riff to play. And uh, yeah, that's where it all started.
0: Was there ever any other song in consideration
2: for being the single? I don't recall Roadrunner even considering singles with us on that record.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: I, 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 I remember the band expecting more out of Roadrunner on that cycle um i think the delays plus the 9/11. i don't know if i'm just making excuses but uh, it feels like it definitely took a toll on a release like roadrunner seemed to be a a label where they would put x amount of effort into your initial release and if it doesn't do enough on its own or you get enough traction they kind of just move on to the next because they have so many releases and so many bands that they want to try to break whatever new band they have or whatever major release and you know our record came out the exact time, same time as El Nino's, El Nino's first one, and you know they were they they got a lot of uh, steam right away, and and so we were kind of not competing, but we we're you know at the same time you know between we're fighting for coverage, you know, and then uh, Digimortal came out, and so did um, Supercharger, all at the same time, and so I think we I feel like we got lost in that mix for sure. Um, and, and because the, the the record didn't come out the gate doing crazy numbers, you know, like I remember us expecting crazy first week sales because we had so much traction, but then we found out they only shipped like 15,000 records. So like, oh, well, we're capped right there because there's only going to be one or two copies in your small record shops, you know? And I think we ended up doing like 4,200 copies and, and uh, we're, you know, we're disappointed, but it was a great feat for a new band, you know? What were the delays that you keep
1: talking about? So, yeah, that's a good question because... Um, People don't realize that Roadrunner in that era sold a majority of their company to Island Def Jam. And they had to postpone our release because of this merger that they were doing. And during this entire merger uh, and postponement, our record was supposed to come out in like June of 2002 or something. And it didn't wind up coming out until October, and that whole time frame, we were uh, on tour promoting it. And it's like the album's not coming out for months, so not only were we like promoting, sh- you know, nothing to sell, but to do these tours, we're taking tour support from Roadrunner and tour support at the time. Hey, you know, the band's got to go out for a month, and they're getting paid two hundred a show. And just for them to be able to do it, they're going to need an extra $50,000, you know, just for them to get from point A to point B. So Roadrunner would, you know, loan the band this money to go on tour. And the hope is, you know, the record is successful and then it's paid back. But because of the delay and because of the merger, now we're burning tour support because it's like, Oh, we got to go on tour again because the albums pushed back till October. Then by the time the album comes out, you, you get nine 11 right around, right around it. And we're just out of funds essentially, as well as the other releases that are coming out on Roadrunner's list of great releases, you know, of course, fear factory is going to get more, uh, manpower from the staff than than our band that's you know just kind of stuttering out of the gate
2: i forgot you know that we spent so much money before the record even came out because they bought us a van and everything and and we did a lot of tours and unfortunately you know all these tours were such small club tours like we were spending so much money to not get much return in regards to possible fans you know um and yeah that wrote did not even mention a video until we were like hey can we have a music video you know like you know and we basically had to produce it ourselves we that,
1: yeah we don't think we had i think dead inside was our single because if you remember they put promos out with dead inside on the slayer tour they put them out on their samplers they, we didn't have a music budget video todd bell was hey man i'm trying to become a film dude you guys are in San Francisco, and he did us a favor, is my me- memory of Split. It was
2: actually, yeah, Split was filmed at the warehouse where Mythbusters was filmed. Garrett Zunt, uh, who I mentioned prior, who was, you know, one of the Strongsville guys, he was interning there or doing something there. Yeah, he um, yep. yeah and he worked for, uh, I don't remember if the show was even out yet or if it was the pilot of it. But it was the beginning of phases of that Mythbusters show and and that mustache dude, I can't remember his name, but it's his its his warehouse. He was so cool. He let us film art. He cleared it out and let us uh, set up a music video set and Todd filmed it. And uh, it was, I, I think we did it for like 2,000 bucks. It was just like Roadrunner had no intentions on spending, you know, big money on us. And this is an era where a music video is, you know, they start at $50,000. You know, it's not like now where the equipment and the budgets are much much cheaper mm-hmm.
1: yeah did we did that yeah that's like a piece of plex plexiglass and some water in his living room yeah i mean it's super low budget and todd was brand new and you know this was a good good opportunity for him as well because now he's got a music video that's going to get played on international tv it was a really cool uh cool experience my worst RAM memory is that's the day lane staley died that we found out the world did anyway he he had died a week prior But the day the world found out that Lane Staley passed was the day we were shooting that video. I remember that.
0: Rizzo has Stephen Carpenter somewhat involved. You alluded to earlier that you met him. So I didn't know, is he actually in the studio working on this song with you? Or he just kind of was shooting ideas with you? How does that collaboration go
1: down? He he came to the studio and brought his guitar. And it was all organic. There was nothing pre-planned. And it was just a spur, not spur of the moment. I mean, we knew he was coming, but everything was organic and on the spot, the song was written and tracked all in one day.
2: I wish we had more time to write a song because it was just kind of a get up and run and go and it was like, get it done with. And uh, it was a total vibe situation where Stefan just started riffing out. And then, yeah, it just went from there. Guys would just build upon what his ideas were. He definitely took the creative lead on the song from what I remember you know, because we wanted his influence, you know, on the song. So why not have him lead it? And I think he wanted that outlet that he wasn't getting in Deftones. He wanted more of the Meshuggah, Fear Factory, Chugga sound, which Deftones wasn't really incorporating back then. Um, So it was a cool, cool experience. I mean, I was freaking out inside because I was like, I got to act cool. But this dude is like in my favorite band ever. And he wants to be on a song of ours. It's like, what the fuck, you know? Uh, I remember him inviting us to uh, the Deftone show in Columbus around. uh, It might've been after we tracked that song. Yeah. I think he recorded that with us before the way they went back on tour with white pony. But anyways, we went to the show and brought us onto the bus and it was such a weird vibe where he, so this is a thing where I learned like later on in life that you don't do like where a band member just brings three random dudes onto the bus. And just kind of just sits them down where like, as a band member, you, you learn that, you know, it's got, that's your home. And so most band members don't just want Rando showing up on the bus and hanging out that you don't know. And so not only does he just bring us on the bus with these, you know, um, veterans, uh, touring veterans, you know, he brings us to the back lounge, which is like a private area of the bus and Chino's, you know, hanging out back there with, uh, with females. I don't, I, I don't know if they're his friends or whatever, but you know, he's hanging out with, uh, with a female and it's like, uh, I don't belong back here it's really loud cause they're cranking music. And, um, and I'm trying to say something to Chino, but my voice doesn't project very well. Um, and he's just like, dude, what the fuck are you trying to say? And I felt so embarrassed. <laughs> and I just like kind of cowered. And like, I just remember just being so embarrassed of that situation, Meeting like a dude that, you know, I, I looked up to, and uh, you know, he wasn't, uh, who knows if he meant to be a dick, but it was, you know, I could tell that he didn't want three random band dudes back there with Stefan, you know, who he wants to roll a joint and, and, and just shoot the shit, you know? In regards to Rizzo, uh, I don't, I don't really, I don't think I did too many samples on it because stefan went so nuts with guitar pedals. He literally had like 30 guitar pedals on the ground. He would just sit there making noise with the freaking pedals and just strumming away and doing weird riffs and, and they were so heavily affected or uh, modulated that, you know, it sounded like a sample. So we're like, that's oh, perfect. You know, he, he, <laughs> he took the lead on almost that whole thing. Is it he named after uh, Mark Rizzo?
1: No. Uh... The dog?
2: No, the dog. There was a the dog studio.
1: In a studio named Rizzo. It was a little terrier. It was
2: awesome. And it kept shitting on the, on the carpet. Man. That is uh, one question
0: I had about Taste My, because I know we talked about the song itself already, but why isn't it just called Taste My Tears? Why is Tears ellipsicized?
1: Oh, man, I think because when you're like 22, you're trying to look more intelligent than you really are. <laughs> okay. <or> serious. <laughs> It's probably why, like, maybe it's taste my cot. What does he mean? What does he want to taste? I, dude, that's just me trying to be creative and
2: same, same, same no with spelling. Idea. Same with spelling. Split with a space in it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Man, you see what I did there? That's creative. Right. <laughs> split, split the word. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> you don't
0: necessarily have to comment yeah. on this, but I, I feel like Rizzo is like the the blueprint and foundation
1: for the entire Amir discography. Everything about it, the lyrics, the sound. So this is interesting that you say that. And I'm a fan of Immure. Uh, I've met uh, Frankie a few times and no beef, nothing but love. But their original guitarist, uh, I met him when they were playing outside of Peabody's. And he came up to me and he said pretty much exactly what you just said. (laughs) He said, pass out of existence is his Bible, basically. Like that was his like biggest influence as a kid, all their riffs that he was writing for a mirror. Like this is their first album basically. And another band that blew me away that they were huge pass out fans was uh, Whitechapel. Oh. So when we toured with Whitechapel, you, they had the seven strings and tuned to our tuning as well. So it was always bizarre. You know, you hear them line checking and you're like, is he playing lumps? <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? so that you know it took it took because we were so hard on ourselves with this album and we had for lack of better you know i don't want to utilize this term in the wrong way but kind of ptsd from the whole thing we're just ashamed embarrassed whatever you want to call it with that album it it was cool to see years later uh, the impact it had on the deathcore scene suicide silence other huge fans of our band amir uh, whitechapel the list goes on and on. So that album, as much as we liked to shit on it, inspired, helped inspire, I should say, uh, an entire genre of music, whether people like that genre or not.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, Chris alluded to it earlier that there are, you know, certainly death metal elements to pass out. They're not as... Uh pronounced I guess would be the right word but certainly your vocals have you know some death metal tinges to them and parts and the riffs are all heavy and bouncy which has never gone out of style whether it has gone through different phases of how it's utilized so um, yeah I I think it would be easy to say that that album is super influential and it's coming out in the time where you know of course new metal is the biggest thing in the world so you're in this canon of bands by default that everybody is kind of familiar with you know everybody knows that cover of pass Out of Existence, whether you wish they did or not.
1: Sure. I, no, no, it's, it's very cool. Like uh, it, it gave, it helped, you know, as we age and everything, give a, a fresher perspective and and a, a deeper appreciation when you see like what it actually, you're like, man, we, we inspired Chapel with that album. Well, shit, you know, it's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate it more now than I did in like the middle of our career when, you know, being new metal or whatever was so looked down on. And uh, just also because, you know, uh, I was so excited about the sound we had at that time, which was quite evolved from Pass Out. You know, I just naturally rejected Pass Out.
0: But I do think that's common that bands feel by default that their newer materials, their best material. So they want to get away from the old stuff and being pigeonholed into it. So I, I mm-hmm. think that's a natural thing. I, you guys have, it sounds like a unique experience with just this album's creation and release. So that's certainly not helping your, your fondness <laughs> for it at the time. But, um, I think that that's normal for you to think that whatever, and I think it would be hard to say that, uh, and possibility of reason isn't a better album it certainly i think technically is but i like pass
1: out of existence more yeah that's yeah and that's what's cool too is that i feel like with each evolution we touch different metal heads and and their wheelhouse different ways right and that is what our band is we're a hybrid so it's cool we have you know fans that maybe appreciate new metal sounds more or maybe the death core sounds more we got like people that love self-titled where they just want that thrash, they want that headbanging metallic vibe. And and you got dudes like me, that are like, man, throw on the infection. Let's get stoned, man.
2: I have a feeling that if like Pass Out was produced or engineered differently, it would have completely changed the vibe of that record. It would have been more like Impossibility Reason. I think the mix and the guitar tones and the drum tones have a lot to do with why it sounds Um, I guess, so, so much like that, the rest of that era at the time.
0: So the last three songs on the album, Force Life, Options, and Jade all seem super, I guess, experimental, for lack of a better word. They're so much different than the rest of the album to me. Were those all newer songs that you guys wrote kind of later in the recording process or?
1: No, I don't recall so forced life i feel was around before the studio i feel like we but i feel like the death metal bridge part was developed in the studio i remember kind of going over that with rob and him writing that riff and being like oh that's the riff that's the riff um jade a lot of that transpired in the studio i don't remember it being that long in its original incarnation options i feel like The music was written, but that's another one that I might have come up with at a later point. But I I don't have much recollection other than one of my most fondest memories is of Jade. And it was when Stefan was in there and we were playing him Jade. And there's this cool part in the middle of the song where it like the whole fucking mix just goes into reverse. And I remember him like, you know, Stone just like giving me the nod like that was cool. That was cool. Like, whoa! I got the nod. Like, that just ah, it felt so cool. Like, giving that nod of approval from from your uh, idol musician idol. So, that's really the only memories I have of have of it. Where was Rob coming up with the the death metal riff? Um, I remember tracking the vocals and being like happy with options vocals because it's all clean vocals and and I did okay with it. I wasn't embarrassed with it i share those same uh self-critical feelings and uh that chris has it's just like you're like it's a it's a high school yearbook picture scenario man it really is it's like you might have this high school photo and like all the chicks are like man you look good but you're like i look like a fucking asshole you know that's kind of the same i guess internal feeling the only way you can describe when we were living it right that's how we felt
2: inside mudrock definitely took you out of your comfort zone with the melodic vocals and pushed you to try some new stuff which which is good because it led to more experiment experimentation um absolutely yeah i I remember you tracking the stuff and hearing for the first time you know in a studio environment it was really cool
0: yeah forced life i know you're saying that the biggest thing that you're taking from it is that that kind of death metal bridge but the thing that sticks out to me most for it is that super melodic chorus on the guitar that's kind of what stuck out for me as far as you know and then going into options that has that super clean singing that i was going to ask you if it even is you because it sounds so different from your singing on the rest of the album well <laughs> to me it sounds like it sounds like stefan richard or steven richards from taproot is who i thought it was
1: you know i've heard taproot a little bit and i've heard uh, the 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 alice and Chains reference so either one you know um i was definitely more influenced by lane uh but trying my hardest not to sound like lane and but i tried harder on impossibility than i i dialed it in more but uh the, the uh yeah, it was just interesting doing it. And Mudrock was definitely influential in getting those performances out of me. I don't think, though, that I had the chops, you know, or the confidence in clean vocals until much later in our career. And when we had to go to perform some of those songs in uh, the early stages of touring with Pass Out, you might not have heard Split. And you might have loved that song, but I'm like, man, I, I don't sing it well. Like I hadn't developed my confidence yet, or I was be flat on stage, or we're playing these clubs. I can't hear myself. Severed's easier for me to pull off, right? Or something, or Forced Life is easier for me than Options or Taste My. So, but when you're in the studio, you can take, you know, a hundred times to get it right, or get it close enough and they'll threaten auto tune you or something. It's not until later where I'm like, man, I could. I could sing options today better than I ever sang it in the studio, right? But um had Mudrock not have persuaded me to do that, it would have never even led me to even try.
0: Around this time for this for Pass Out of Existence, you record a cover of Balls to the Wall for the <laughs> ECW Anarchy Rocks album. Yeah. And on top of that, Farm Club is bookended with Monday Night Raw. So are you guys into wrestling at all or ever have any interactions with wrestlers where they're big fans of Kamira?
1: So I grew up as a huge wrestling fan. I am old school wrestler fan, like from the era where you're tuning into your UHF channel and you're seeing Sting uh, come in, you know, with a bunch of fuzz through your television set. So I don't recall how the ECW thing happened
2: so we were in this was before camara was signed mark and i went to new york to meet with uh, different managers labels i think this is when we went to roadrunner first to meet monty connor we went to one of our stops was concrete management they managed lincoln park they also did publishing for records as well you know he knew that at the time camara was charting on college radio and we had all this steam and uh yeah. So we went to concrete management, kind of just hung out, talked to him and, uh, and he's like, Hey, I'm putting out this ECW soundtrack. Do you guys want to be part of it? We're like, and he's like, you'll be on a record with, you know, named off all these bands. And we're like, uh, sure, of course, you know, but the catch was we had to cover balls to the wall. And uh, yeah, we just went to Ben's studio, knocked it out. <laughs> it was uh, you know, we didn't take ourselves seriously doing it. It was, it was fun, but it was just a, uh, you know, just one of those things that we did that you know I wouldn't say we're not proud of or proud of. It just happened, <laughs> and it's a part of our history.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The the also that evening or that day when we were at Concrete, Lincoln Park were there. Oh yeah, and they were a brand new band, and they were just like another band in the same like kind of in the same lounge area. Yeah, that we're there's
2: like a it was like a green room, yeah, with a bunch of
1: Yeah. And they're like, Hey, yeah, we're just we're a brand new band. We're here. They were mixing their album or mastering it and hybrid theory. And they're like, You check it out with us. And and they were playing us their album. Um, so we might have been one of the first people ever to hear hybrid theory. We have, the only other wrestling connection we have and I always forget about this is it would have been the next album but we had a B-side utilized for backyard wrestling video game. Oh yeah. That was that was interesting. With the insane but yeah, that, clown posse. Yes, exactly.
2: But I forgot about that?
1: Totally awesome to be a part of anything wrestling. Um I'm not sure who other if there were any other wrestling fans in the group but uh I've for for a, for a long time as a kid. I
2: was a huge 80s wrestling fan. I mean you know, Saturday night, Saturday night main events, you know, all that. I, I, I stuck to WWF growing up. Um, I kind of fell off when the rock era came on, but uh, you know, my friend uh, Kent Sinkler. so he's, this is a guy who worked for us for a while. He's a Cleveland guy as well. He came to Vegas eight years ago for this Japan wrestling thing. I don't remember what it was, but it was at a, a casino in Vegas and he asked if I could go and it was really cool. You know, I haven't been around that in a while and it was all the, I guess the biggest Japanese wrestlers were there.
0: What is something that you're most proud of about this album? I know you. there's a lot that you don't like about it, but what's your, your favorite thing about it? Tell me what you
1: don't like. Well, where do we begin? <laughs> Here's the Roman scroll.
2: I'd say it was just the overall experience for me. Like I can say that I got to live the actual music industry life back when it was booming and money was being thrown around and I got to live the big experience of being flown to California to write and record a record um and then being indoctrinated to the road owner family was was huge because i looked up to him so much so what not so much like pass out uh the music i pass out makes me proud it's just the experience and then hearing how other bands were influenced you know was huge innocence was was the best part of it and just not knowing what you're walking into
1: my moment for that album is as a musician and growing up and trying to be in bands there was one moment I saw Machine Head play and it was the first time I'd ever seen them and I look after Davidian ended I looked at my buddy I'm like I want to be in a fucking band like that one day then you fast forward to the day our album comes out I'm in a car with the singer of Machine Head and we're going to buy our albums together like, that was huge for me, and it was, like, kind of one of those peak moments. And then you go, like, a month later, and we're on tour with Slayer, who's, I'm all, I'm into heavy metal because of Slayer. So, like, from that moment on, everything just went downhill with the band. Because so I had reached, I'm just kidding, I reached my mountain, and that was it. But, no, for as a fan, like, I think that's my last moment, I was ever a fan fan, you know what I mean? Because after that, we're we're in the scene we're in the mix we're doing it with everybody i learned that carrie king isn't a guy in my poster he's a guy that has a fucking lawnmower i'm like wait a minute you have a fucking lawnmower you don't just have pentagrams and swords and guitars like wait you care about trees and cutting your law this is weird you're a human being right so i think it was the last time i had was still in that moment of like true non-jaded musician fanboy like this is so exciting it's the best moment of my life we made it we landed this is it we can't do that without that album so i have to be proud of that and it launches our career it's just just you know we just wore the wrong sweater that day for the high school
0: Twenty years have passed out of existence, but it can't quite seem to disappear from my thoughts. Endless thanks to Mark and Chris for letting us in on the history of such an important album to me, and I know many of you, and whether they like it or not, to Kamira. If you want to keep up with Mark singing these songs, check out his Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash underscore Mark. Follow today, subscribe tomorrow. While you're twitching, we'll be meeping here every week with another entry into the Roadrunner canon, so come on back, won't ya? My name is Ryan Rainbow. this is Meep Meep, and yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye! Meep Meep!
1: Can you guys hear this if I do this? Smoke weed every day! <laughs> <laughs>